So as I mentioned in the beginning of our session when we were uh, practicing, when we were meditating, I wanted to continue the exploration of concentration understood as one of the factors of the Eightfold Path and continue exploring its meaning in general, its meaning for our practice, our everyday practice, our, our everyday life practice, and to also bring in some further attention to another one of the factors of the Eightfold Path, uh, which we usually translate as effort. The, the word is virya, and it might be translated also as energy or um, it's that quality of uh, kind of energy in practice or uh, a live uh, force in our practice, something. And those, those words start to get at it. And then my, my uh, hope was then, I think sometime probably uh, next week, would continue with the third of the factors related to meditation on the Eightfold Path, which is mindfulness. So we have these three factors. Uh, usually listed first as effort, then there is um, typically concentration and mindfulness. And uh, those are the specific factors on, on the Eightfold Path that are crucial for the development of this inner work that we call, that we call meditation or contemplative practice or inner cultivation as it uh, would be a translation of uh, one of the core words, a bhavana. And uh, this uh, fills out the earlier parts of the Eightfold Path. If you remember, the, generally, uh, there are, there's a segment of the Eightfold Path related to meditation. There's a segment related to living ethically, living with integrity, which includes three aspects. One is wise speech. Another one would be uh, wise or uh, mature ethical conduct. It's, it's usually translated as right action. And last time I talked some about how the word right uh, is not so right <laughs> as a translation. That is be better to, in my view, to call it something like mature. And here we, Spirit Rock, we often say wise speech. I think m mature or developed or complete speech, completed speech, realized speech might be another way of talking about it. Uh, so, and then there's also uh, what's usually translated as right livelihood. So how we make our living, uh, our speech, our following of the ethical precepts are what's particularly pointed out in terms of ethical integrity. And then in terms of there's also a segment for wisdom which focuses particularly on uh, what's translated as right understanding and right aspiration. In other words, how we, our, our wisdom factor. Understanding is usually unpacked first in terms of the Four Noble Truths, how we understand suffering, the roots of suffering, freedom, the roots of freedom, really the central dynamic that we look at in this practice. And the wisdom would be to really see that more clearly in one's own life and in, in looking at the, life, the lives of others. And then uh, the right or mature aspiration is what's, how, what are my intentions, what's my motivation for my life, really, for my everyday action. So we're focusing 
on the three aspects of meditation. I, and I should say, as I said last time, that there is a certain arbitrary quality to, to this list. We could include, we could easily have a tenfold path, a fifteenfold path. We could update it to be more contemporary and talk about right relationship or right diet or something like, you know. Um, I'm, I'm not quite serious there. I think that, you know, and I think in a way we're all exploring that, you know, right social action, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, right citizenship. These are all uh, factors that if we wanted to have a full sense of a contemporary path, I think we would want to supplement this some. But it's very helpful here, as we're doing, to look at the, these three factors related to, to meditation. And I'll just review a little bit of where I was last time and then bring in some more material on concentration and uh, also on the, the quality of energy or effort in practice, which is a really big issue. It's really an issue of how can I energize my practice? How can I, what should I do? I want to be, I want to have more mindfulness, more wisdom, more heartfulness in my practice. How do I do that? What's the, an effort is one of the ways that we get a handle on that. Do I simply sit more? You know, how do I have balanced effort? How do I, I want to have more, but do, do, I don't want to strain and strive and judge myself for not meeting my goals. So that's really where the question of what is a balanced effort, wise effort, mature effort comes in. It's a huge question for us, maybe almost even more of a question in daily life where we are unsure sometimes how to proceed. It's a big, it's a very big question. So I mentioned that last time that when we look to concentration practice, and for those not here last time, I wanted to say that I was partly inspired to take this topic by the fact that I did a several week concentration retreat just a few weeks ago and was energized, inspired by that. And also I led a day long with uh, actually the people who had been my teachers for that retreat, Tina Rasmussen and Stephen Snyder. Uh, we co-led a day long uh, just about, what, a uh, week and a half ago and really brought together a lot of thoughts on, um, and practices on concentration and also having taught, just taught the loving-kindness retreat, which is a form of concentration practice. So all of those inspired me to uh, focus on this topic. So there are many forms of concentration practice. Classically, there are 40. It could be really whatever we focus our mind on and our attention on to the exclusion of all other objects. So any, there are many, many pot ways to do concentration practice. I've primarily focused on the breath because that's the very primary one, and most of us do some variant of that. But we could do, as I mentioned, loving-kindness practice. We could practice with uh, um, compassion or joy or equanimity. We could practice with um, a physical object. We could look at a flame. We could chant. We could visualize. There are all sorts of ways to do concentration practice. We could stare at a tree. You know, we could visualize an image in our mind and hold it there, as, you know, as is done in some traditions. And so the focus of, of this concentration practice is to just stay with one object and to keep coming back to uh, really to build a number of these powerful qualities of mind and heart and really of body that come when we're steady with one object. 
And we do that, again, we do that with our mindfulness practice, typically at the beginning of a session. We want to steady our minds. If we come in from a busy day and we want to sit, it's skillful to just focus on the breath or just focus on one thing to bring our mind to steadiness. If we try to be mindful without doing that, we'll tend to be distracted and all over the place. So that steadiness is a part of mindfulness practice as well. You know? And I mentioned how uh, probably a better translation than concentration is something like unification of mind or unification of mind and heart. <clears throat> This is from one of the uh, classic texts on concentration practice called the Vasudhimaga, which is translated as the path of purification from about the 4th or 5th century. And uh, it, I'm using the, the original Pali word is samadhi, you know, which we, we know that word in probably in many ways. Um, samadhi or concentration is the profitable unification of mind. It is the centering of consciousness, mind, and heart evenly and appropriately on a single object, undistracted and unscattered. So it's an aspiration. Uh, And I I think I I tried last time not to use the word concentration and I failed. So I'm uh, to use some unification of mind all the time. I'm just going to use concentration. But if you understand that it's actually not an ideal translation because it can suggest a kind of manipulative use of attention where I'm here you know, trying to concentrate on that. And this, the, the deep aspect of concentration is much more relaxed and much less dualistic. It's more unified. We simply we relax into being just with the object. And, and I've mentioned how relaxation is a really key aspect of of concentration practice, paradoxically, we combine relaxation with firm intent and firm, firmly returning continually. So with concentration practice, as I mentioned in the instructions, we don't try to focus on in the same way that we would with mindfulness practice. We don't uh, try to label necessarily all, the, all that's coming by. There's a certainly uh, an aspect of mindfulness in continually returning to the breath. There's an aspect of that. We um, necessarily notice, oh, I was there again, oh, I was there again. But we don't put so much effort into actually saying, okay, that's my conversation with Susan. Okay, there's planning, there's judging, there's sadness, there's anger. We don't try to focus, we don't try to name it so much. We don't try to stay with it. I mentioned in the instructions that the exception to this would be where something is extremely strong and stays for quite a while. Generally, if that's the case, we would switch to mindfulness practice or maybe some other practice. We had the question come up last time of sometimes doing concentration practice. I've accessed uh, a strong grief comes up. And I'll, I'll talk more about that later. But if that comes up, like if that was coming up in a retreat or in a daily sitting and it was just really, really strong and pervasive, and stayed for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, the whole time, then we wouldn't try to fight it. We would go with it, basically, and respond to it appropriately, which could mean mindfulness, if that's possible. It could mean loving kindness. It could mean something else, you know, with something like that. 
So concentration is crucial in many ways. It's necessary to have some stability or stillness of mind in order to do any meditation whatsoever. I think we, we all know that pretty well. We have to have some stability. And so one of the early wonderful discoveries of our practice is that it's possible for the mind to be still. It's possible not to just be running around thinking all the time. You know? And I like to say, I, you know, when I started meditation, I was a student. What do students do? They think. <laughs> what was I doing? I was thinking most of the time, you know, and I was, um, and that's what I was supposed to do. Uh, if I wasn't thinking, I was not being a good student. And so um, when I started to meditate, I would notice I was just thinking and planning. I had a report the next day. I just think about it all the time, right? And it was very uh, stunning to realize First of all, how much I was thinking. I think we all have that, you know, that realization at some time. Oh my gosh, this is, this is a thought machine, <laughs> just ongoing, you know. And we can be judgmental about that, but it's actually just the way it is. But it's also possible, with training, which actually isn't that hard, to settle attention and to come to a point where we are not thinking so much. I came to this realization, which I sometimes like to talk about, that in preparing for my report the next day in my meditation, and I would be thinking about it 80 times, 20 times would do. Quite enough. <laughs> you know, you know, so I found, you know, so I found, I find myself now, I think my thought process is extremely reduced from when it was when I started meditating, but it's better quality. You know, I, 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 you know, I subjectively think it's not scientific basis, but I think I probably think 20 or 30 percent of the amount that I did when I started meditating. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of silence. You know, maybe more than that. I don't know. Hard to say. Um, so we need that stability to um, really to start seeing our own experience, to start seeing our own minds and hearts, and we learn to stabilize attention. So with concentration, we stabilize, we have a certain steadiness, which has incredible benefit, right? It leads into what we might call equanimity, which requires mindfulness. But when we have a certain amount of mindfulness, we've seen a lot of experiences. We've, in meditation or in other kinds of practices, we've studied anger, sadness, judgment, joy, happiness, uh, despair, all the more intense emotions and thought patterns, positive and negative, the main ones, we've looked at them, it gives a certain, together with concentration, a certain equanimity where it's kind of like we sometimes like to talk about equanimity as that of the wise grandmother who's seen everything, you know, and the whatever, the grandchildren come and say, you know, hey, I'm, oh, this happened, oh my gosh. It's like, uh, just calm down, which is concentration, guidance. <laughs> just calm down, you know, here's, you know, give some guidance. So, so with that steadiness, we open up to equanimity, quite profound state, which can be there with wisdom and just see. With, with that steadiness, we also open up to the deeper levels of our nature. It's really required. There's a uh, passage I wanted to read you um, about this from, from a, one of the books which I'll have on the reading list, which is by 
Richard Shankman, who teaches here quite often, uh, called The Experience of Samadhi, which is on concentration. It's in, it's in the bookstore. It's a nice book on concentration. And another book by uh, people I mentioned, Stephen Snyder and Tina Rasmussen, is called Practicing the, Jaun the Jhanas. That also should be in the bookstore. These, are, these would be on the list. And this is from, from the Buddha. He says, without the peace of concentration, without attaining to calm, without winning one-pointedness, that one should enter and abide in mind emancipation, insight emancipation, that cannot be. Without concentration, there's not freedom. We can't see clearly to come to freedom. And so concentration was emphasized continually in, in the text. So it brings steadiness. It brings an ability to connect with the object and to stay on the object, to uh, really stay with the breath, to stay with whatever's happening and not be distracted. It opens up to uh, potentially to rapture and bliss, you know, which can be quite wonderful. You know, I, I can, can, be, can really give a different experience of ourselves, which in many ways can be tremendously transformative to experience our own being as blissful, as potentially full of incredible well-being. It both gives us a sense of the possibilities of human nature, it gives us something to rest in, and it also, I think, really uh, cuts through some of our attachments, we might say, to lesser degrees of happiness. There's a deep happiness in concentration from the stilling of the distracted mind. That, again, it opens up to bliss in the body that's quite, quite powerful. It gives a kind of simplicity and focus. It's a beautiful practice. It can give, there can be tremendous happiness from just staying with one thing. I think we probably know that in other parts of our lives. Just to stay with one thing can bring happiness, can bring a resting of the heart. That's what one can experience just staying in concentration. We can experience that to lesser degrees or greater degrees. You know, we can experience that just in sittings when we, when we do more of this. You know, I mentioned also last time how I think this is quite crucial that actually I think concentration practice as a meditation practice can be quite beneficial in terms of our simplifying our lives and being clear in our priorities, which again for many of us is a huge issue. Probably for all of us it's an issue to some extent. You know, I speak for myself and just am I living the kind of life I want to lead? Am I getting too distracted? Am I trying to do too many things? Trying to connect with too many activities? You know, uh, trying to whatever, visit too many sites on the internet. <laughs> anyone, anyone do that? <laughs> you know, or, or whatever, whatever it might be. That I think uh, having that access to a stability uh, of mind, a peace of mind, permits us to say this is what's important for me, this is what I really want, and these distractions stand in the way. Let me let go of those. Let me drop those. It's a hu again, huge issue. Again, when I meet with people, whether in retreat or in daily life conversations, that's often 
a topic. You know, and some of my work is to help people to prioritize. You know, kind of like a coach almost, just, okay, what's important for you? It's, it's something to look at, and concentration practice can really help with that. You know, there's, in, in relation also to that quality of bliss in the body, there's also a deep relaxation of the body, which again, I think can be quite, quite uh, beautiful and powerful. Uh, can open us up to uh, deeper insights. Ultimately, the rationale for concentration practice in the classical teachings is to develop enough depth of awareness so we can see through the confusions of our mind and heart and body and to come to, come to freedom. Another reading from the uh, ancient texts from the Buddha uh, on, on the value of concentration for developing insight, for really coming to freedom. Practitioners develop concentration. A practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really are. Quite a statement, and that's repeated over and over again. And there's some, there are a number of teachings where having a concentrated mind is understood as the proximate cause for seeing accurately one's own nature and seeing phenomena clearly. Here it says, a practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really are. And what does that practitioner understand as it really is? And there are many passages where they go through the different things, the different teachings about the nature of things. Here it's expressed in terms of the four truths, which probably most of you know pretty well. The truth that there's suffering, that there's some kind of reactive grabbing hold or pushing away of experience, that that is a root of suffering. And that it's also possible to come to freedom through understanding and through practice. So what does one understand as it really is? One understands this is suffering. One understands this is the origin of suffering. One understands as it really is, that is the cessation of suffering. One understands as it really is, that is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So that's, that's ultimately the rationale. We can get attached to all the bliss. I remember one teacher I heard discussing this issue say, said, get attached. <laughs> Explore the bliss, deepen it, and get, and it's okay to be attached for a little while. He was being facetious a little bit, but it's, uh, but it is, it is uh, something to look out for because we can get very attached to, I think we probably know this, we can get somewhat attached to peace and bliss of meditation and that can have some negative consequences that I think we know. We, we can, what? We can, when we don't get there, we can think we had a bad meditation. We can criticize ourselves, judge ourselves. We can forget about the deeper intention of concentration practice, which is insight and freedom. You know, that the bliss is in a way a byproduct. can be very, very helpful, can be very, very skillful to access that, I, as I mentioned, it can play a big role in healing and transformation. So um, I wanted to talk about an aspect I didn't talk about so much last time, which is very, very interesting, which is the way in which um, concentration practice, and I think this is true of all of our practice, can be what we might call a path of purification, to use that metaphor that's used in the text. And in fact, there, there are passages uh, where 
the metaphor of purification is used. I don't know whether it's purification of water or some kind of purification. And um, if, if by that term we're not so much meaning that that uh, that which is purified is somehow bad, or we should be judgmental, you know, about that. And I'll get back to that point because this is important. Well, we may want to use other language. Maybe I was thinking of transformation can be a good word. But there's something about the practice of uh, concentration that in the classical text they do use the metaphor of purification. They say that concentration practice is the purification of the mind and the heart. That's what it says. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that, um, partly from my own experience about how that manifests. And it's related to that earlier question about I sit, I concentrate my mind, and grief comes up or something else comes up. Um, I was thinking of purification as having two main meanings. One is that we work through the so-called impure, or we work through that which obscures our own wisdom and love, we might say. That's another way to say it. We work through that which obscures our own wisdom and love, our own uh, radiance, our own bliss and shining qualities, which very happily in these traditions, this is what we say we basically are. We are interdependent, radiant orbs of being. (laughs) Could I say that again? I had never said it before. I didn't have it in my notes. So we are interdependent, intertwined, radiant, wise orbs of wonderfulness. <laughs> so, and, uh, and we know that at times, but we really have to, there's a poem where it says we have to get retrained to know ourselves. We have to get trained to, to know uh, who we are, and that's, that's what, why we're here. You know, that's why we're here. And so we, we the, the, the metaphor of purification, we could use, again, use the word transformation, I think occurs in two ways. First, we see more clearly that which gets in the way of that radiance or that brilliance, number one. And number two, we touch that radiance and brilliance more. So as, as it were, we um, work through the impure, and we touch the pure more. Both are both aspects, you know, and different practices do different things. And concentration practice does both. And again, I, I'm hesitant to use a word like purification because we can think, oh, that which obscures my radiance is impure, and I should be, and I might be judgmental about that. You know, maybe my my habits or my conditioning or my what I got from my family or this or that. You know, I can be judgmental about that. And that's not what this is. That's not helpful. That's not where where we want to go with that metaphor. And I was thinking, when I was thinking about purification, I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about the Shakers. And I lived twice near Shaker villages. Once I lived in Tiringham, Massachusetts. I don't know if anyone's been there near Monterey, Massachusetts, in western Massachusetts, where I lived right near what had been a Shaker village. The Shakers were a Christian sect who had an um, unusual view that um, one should not engage uh, in sexuality. 
has led to issues with their longevity <laughs> as an organization. Basically, they did very, very well in the 19th century as long as they had strong arrangements with orphanages. When those relations with orphanages dried up, so did the Shakers. And, but I remember, I also lived in Kentucky for a period of time where there had also been a big Shaker village. I remember going there and I got a postcard that I used to have in my, my room, which was from the Shaker village, which was a little bit this judgmental or dualistic view about the impurities. It, it was the, the, um, this was designed for children and the postcard said, clean your room, there is no dirt in heaven. Oh. <laughs> clean your room, there is no dirt in heaven. So I was thinking about that, thinking about the model of purification. So, um, so what gets purified? You know, what gets purified in this process? I think it's very true also for a meditation practice in general, but it, it gets a little more heightened with concentration practice. I know from teaching the metta retreat, people have more intense uh, inner material on metta retreats, which are concentration retreats, than they do on mindfulness retreats, in general. You know. uh, we've seen that. It's quite interesting. You know, people have more intense dreams. You know, we have, have uh, at these retreats, sometimes people come really shaken up, said, I just, last night I was an axe murderer. <laughs> is, this, is this my true nature? <laughs> you know. I say, it is a path of purification, <laughs> you know. And it's, it's true that people, there, there often are intense dreams, and it's not, of course, not just in retreats. When we're doing a lot of meditation or actively involved with transformation, there can be that kind of um, rich um, process in the mind. We can have intense dreams. I remember I had a period for two years where after which I, I, I had made two trips to Eastern Europe and I did pilgrimages to Auschwitz and I visited a lot of the uh, killing places. And um, I had dreams about the Nazis for two years. It was a kind of, kind of purification process. And interestingly, what I learned from that, you know, it, I mean, it was partly about the outer situation, but a lot of it, as I came to see, was about my own inner Nazi, actually. Not what I expected at first, but that's what I actually looked at, right? It wasn't all external, as dreams are rarely all external. Those of you who study dreams know that. And so there was a kind of purification process that, that happened that could manifest in dreams. It manifests a lot in the body. You know, when we do more meditation practice, sometimes we feel where the tightness is, where the constriction is. There can, we can sit for periods of time with constriction around the chest and feel energy there, you know, and around the heart. So you can feel it in different places. There can be energetic releases. All sorts of things happen. It can happen in meditation. It can happen, obviously, around here. A lot of people do explore that through yoga or different kinds of body work or qigong or similar processes happen. But can understand that that's part of what we mean by purification. Things come out that were beneath the surface. You know, things in the body. Emotions come out. Grief can come out. You know, anger, judgment, sadness, joy, positive things can come out. Our beauty can come out. Brilliance can come out. That's the purification process that happens very profoundly with concentration practice when we do that a lot. 
again, happens more generally with meditation. You know, we also see more what are in Buddhist terms called the root um, kalesas, or the usual translation is defilement, which I don't like very much for reasons that it can really make us judgmental. But it's something like, basically, it's the greed, hatred, and delusion in our being that that gets that gets looked at. That's a lot of what we look at in meditation. Concentration practice, we are sitting there trying to be with the breath, and the mind goes to, should I go to that bakery after meditation? Hmm. If I do, what should I have? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. You, need I say more? You know, there's, there's that, that, and that's, that's kind of a low-level, you know, desire taking over in the mind, right? And it's not a huge existential issue, but it's, it's there, and, and that comes up, and the bigger ones come up as well. You know, the bigger ones come up, and we notice that. And it's not that desire is wrong, but we look to where it's compulsive or conditioned, and that's part of the purification. You know, we look to where there's, um, where we get irritated. We look, all of this comes up in meditation. We, you know, we generally become less greedy, less hateful, and less deluded. Those are all aspects of purification. You know, and so we, we work with that in, in all sorts of different ways. So maybe I'll just close by saying a little bit about more about, about, about effort. The, the, in terms of um, concentration practice, it's, um, we, we need, again, we need that paradoxical balance of being very clear, firm, determined, effortful, energetic with being relaxed. It's like, how do we do that? It's really a secret, in a way, to life, isn't it? You know, to have that, have that balance. And that's key to, the, key to this practice. It's a balance, we might say, of doing and being. Again, it could be a critical balance in our lives. How do we both act continually, but have a relaxed quality of presence and being? Again, we could see that in other parts of our lives as well. We, we keep coming back. You know, and there are periods when we need to be very, as it were, proactive with effort. We need to really, you know, sometimes when we're a little lethargic, we need to really say, let's just rouse the effort. You know, so we can do things like we could do things like do some yoga or stretching before meditation. That can help with effort if we're feeling lethargic or sleepy. You know, we can do different things that help with the effort. Sometimes we have to be very proactive with effort and concentration and really do what needs to be done. It could be to stand up, you know, if we're feeling sleepy or whatever, or to really let, to be proactive and say, I'm going to let go of that preoccupation. I've noticed this thought continually repeating, and I can see the extent to which I feed into it. I indulge in it. I'm going to let that go. That's a kind of proactive effort. And then there's also what we might call a more receptive effort where we relax into things. Some, you know, one, when I was doing this retreat a few weeks ago, for me I found very, very helpful both kinds of effort. You know, um, I found sometimes, you know, in retreats sometimes we have a lot of ha- uh, time on our hands, right? As we do in <laughs> meditation, especially in retreats. You're kind of just there, nothing to do. It's very easy to indulge in thoughts, right? It's easy enough in half an hour as well, but 
But, uh, and so there's, sometimes there's a, little pl there's a place for discipline. So I found myself doing the kind of practice which I learned from Tibetan practice of sometimes if I notice myself just having uh, thoughts that were just kind of, you know, just coming in okay. You know, because I, on this retreat, I had uh, some repetitive thoughts about interior decoration. <laughs> Happens on retreats, people. I remember Joseph Goldstein said once on some of his retreats, he, he designed many, many retreat centers. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So I was having some of those thoughts, and I, there was a place where it just said, okay, Donald, what do you want to do on this retreat? You want to just keep thinking about interior decoration on the margins of your retreat? And I, and I would just go like that. That helped me. I'd say, you know, I would do that if I was by myself, and I wasn't by myself. I would do the equivalent in a way that didn't make sound. You know, you know, and the Tibetans sometimes say "pay," you know, which kind of does the same thing. It cuts through. You know, and I would do that sometimes. That was more proactive effort to kind of say, "Okay, do I?" And it's really, do I want to keep on indulging, or do I really want to go deeper here? That's a kind of proactive effort. And then the more receptive effort that I found helpful in this retreat was some, you know, sometimes just to say, um, let me just open up to the mystery of life, of my mind, of my being. And I, I did a number of times I said something like that. It was very, very helpful. It, it helped to lead to a kind of relaxed, deep presence. Let me just open to the mystery that's here. You know, that's here right now. And so some way of combining that kind of proactive effort and the receptive effort. It's another way of talking about what I was talking about is firmness plus relaxation. Proactive plus receptive effort. And, you know, together these can really, they're kind of like uh, the skillful ways of cultivating this quality of concentration. And after, at a certain point, when one's used that kind of effort, there comes to be what we might call a kind of effortless effort. You know, in concentration, I think many of us know this. It's when we've put out the effort and we're kind of just staying with the object and we're like in a groove. You know, another metaphor that's used is we're riding the rails. It's like we're staying with the object and it's not like we're doing anything. It's very similar to what we probably most of us have done if there's any place of our own expertise that we've developed. You know, I know for myself I was a competitive swimmer. And I still do a lot of swimming. And I can swim, you know, when I'm in shape, I can swim at a, with a pretty high level of effort, but it doesn't feel like effort. Pretty high level of energy. And the same thing maybe if you're a musician or doing something like that, or, you know, maybe jogging or something. What initially took a lot of effort, at a certain point, doesn't take effort because you're familiar with it. You're kind of locked in. And it's the same way with the mind. We can get locked in to this quality of concentration so it feels like effortless effort. And then it kind of takes off on its own. And that's really, that's really the kind of uh, direction. Uh, and there, you know, there's uh, um, one, of the, one teacher, Tanisaro, says, when we get to that point of effortless effort, it's more like play and equanimity and great energy. Very beautiful state. So I'll just stop here. And let's take just a moment to be quiet and then we can have a little bit of discussion.
Any questions or <clears throat> or reflections? Uh, please see see a few. Yeah. When you're talking about effort and work, um, I was yeah. Um, so what's the what's the relation of attention to effort? Yeah. Well, intention. Intention. I'm sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah. Um, intention can be be part of that uh, uh, effort, both kinds, both the what I was calling more proactive and more receptive kinds of effort. We can. You know, in a way, um, the intention could be there for either kind. The kind of the intention, you, you remember that wise intention is an aspect of wisdom. So it's like the wisdom helps us set the intention. The wisdom can say, what kind of effort is appropriate right now? And we can set an intention. So I can say, I can say I'm a little lethargic. My, my mindfulness notices that. My wisdom says, I'm a little lethargic. What should be the quality of my effort? And I should say, well, let's do your Donald's clapping, okay? Or let's let's really try to have some discipline with uh, repetitive thoughts. Yeah. At certain other moments, that might be overbearing, right? That might be straining or striving too much. And sometimes that's very skillful, right? So we have the wisdom is to know which is appropriate and to set the intention to proceed in a certain way. Same thing, I could set the intention, you know, I'm really kind of, um, I put out a lot of effort. I think what I really need now is to relax a little bit more. Let me just say, let me, let me intend to just uh, have that quality of opening to mystery. Right? So, so I think intention is, is the, as it were, the um, connective between wisdom and how we practice. That's a way to, clear way to say it. Uh, please. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about purification yeah. and having intense feelings, yeah. um, so this is probably an obvious question, but I wasn't sure. Does it mean then that if something comes up that's been hidden, it's a way to expel it? Or yeah. it just is? Yeah, so the, the question is in the context of talking about purification and the surfacing of sometimes intense feelings or thoughts, does that mean that when something comes up, it's a way of expelling it? Um, maybe maybe uh, the metaphor would be more maybe a working it through. It might be a, more the spirit of it. So it's because it's not really not the enemy. You know, it's not, that's where the purification metaphor can be a little dangerous. So it's more like, you know, what, so what happens if, if I notice, if in my life I haven't really, I've, I've been trained to suppress anger, okay? And I get to a, some place you know, in my meditation, or you know, it doesn't have to be meditation, it could be just in my relationship or in therapy or whatever. But I get to a plane in my meditation where a lot of anger is arising. Well, uh, I think, first of all, it's helpful to frame it that this is, could be part of the transformation process of having things which haven't surfaced have a place to surface. That's one thing that meditation does. It gives us this open space of awareness and general kindness 
And what's unconscious often says, oh, this is the best opportunity I've had for a long time. Let's open up because, you know, if not now, then, then when? <laughs> or, you know, I'm being a little silly, but uh, something like that. And so, uh, you know, let's say the anger arises, and then we, we work skillfully with the anger. You know, and it doesn't mean trying to get rid of it. It generally means to open, see what it has to say, welcome it, learn the lessons, and so forth, and move on. But not to be, you know, what gets purified, as it were, is the way that we may have suppressed it in the past, if, I, if we can use that. Or what gets transformed is that earlier tendency. And we become more able just to be open and, in a way, friendly or accessible to anger when it comes up. It's not like we get rid of it forever. Does that, does that help some? Yeah. Thanks. Please, in the back. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, the question is, did I uh, did I talk about a concentration retreat? Um, <clears throat> I don't recall doing that today. Um, but uh, we do have at Spirit Rock. We have concentration retreats named concentration retreats once, and we may have more next year. And I'm I've been uh, exploring the possibility of do, of co-leading one next year. There is one that occurs, I think it occurs this year, I forget what time, but this year we have one with Philip Moffat, Eugene Cash, uh, Sally Clough is often, Armstrong's often teaching it. And, but you can also think of the metta retreats are also, those happen twice a year, those are concentration retreats. And if you were interested in exploring concentration, you could go to practically any retreat and ask a teacher if you could practice concentration. You know, the, the talks wouldn't necessarily be focused in that way, but they'd be workable, especially if you have a relation with a teacher or have been practicing a lot, that you could go to a five-day or seven-day mindfulness retreat and ask the teacher, I'd like to really develop further in concentration. Could we focus in this way? And most teachers would be receptive. It's probably good for, for them to know a fair amount about your, your practice before, but you could do that, and it's very valuable. I think we're, I, I heard that we've just had uh, typically one concentration retreat a year at Spirit Rock. You know, of course, like in the two-month retreat, people sometimes do concentration practice for a month or, or longer. So there op- at the two-month retreat, there's a lot of options for doing uh, for you know, not doing things, everyone the same way. But I, I know for 2012 we had three, uh, whereas in the past there had just been one concentration retreat, we had three requests for concentration retreats from teachers to lead them. So I think there'll be more. You know, and I'll give some resources and websites uh, next time on the, on the handout for, for that, because Tina and Stephen uh, with whom I taught you know, a week and a half ago, they teach several retreats at Cloud Mountain in southern, near Portland that are longer, that are, you know, ideally, it's ideal to have a retreat that approaches at least 10 days or two weeks to really, it takes time for most of us to settle into this. So, yeah. Maybe just, yeah. Richard Shankman is giving a concentration retreat for the first week of April. Yeah. Yeah, first week of April, Richard Shankman, who wrote this book, is giving a retreat. He has a website, so he has also offerings. 
on concentration practice. You probably could look up Richard Shankman on the web. And uh, he is doing, a, is it a one week? It's ten days. Ten days in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Mm -hmm. And I think he, yeah, so he is also a, re a local resource. Very good. I'll, I'll assemble these next time. So I think we have a lot of hands up, and it's a, it's a few minutes after 11. Um, you, you had one. Let me take, uh, who else had a hand up? Okay, you, let's do two. I'll, I'll probably respond pretty briefly, if that's okay. Yeah. <clears throat> For, for next time? Oh, no, oh, now. Now, next time. I'll do okay. it next time. What happened on my personal retreat? <laughs> I focused on my breath 18 hours a day for two weeks. And my concentration deepened. And uh, let's see, what were the highlights? Um, um, well, it felt beautiful, you know, as... It's just uh, amazing to to be in stillness for sus sustained times. You know, I didn't have that many thoughts about interior decoration. Um, oh, I did. I did as a part of an organized retreat. Yeah, did it part of an organized retreat, and I, I was at Cloud Mountain, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, I don't know what more to say. Um, it was very inspiring, and uh, as a matter of fact, I mean, some of the practicalities of doing it, I'll, I'll be brief here, was it helps when one's doing concentration practice to sit for longer periods, generally. But you don't have to do it to the point where the knees are hurting and so forth. Like what I would do, I would typically sit um, two and a half to three hours at a time, maybe th three or four times a day. and. Uh, but they would, wasn't like I was straining my body, because the body has to be pretty relaxed, and not every you know you have to build up to that capacity, and not everyone could do that. Uh, there are a lot of people at the retreat who had never sat more than 45 minutes, so that for them, but most people after two weeks could stretch to two hours at a time, just from doing it. So I would, but I would sit, like I would sit cross-legged for an hour, and then I would uh, stand up, and a few moments later I would switch to a chair. I sit in a chair for an hour, then I'd switch back to cross-legged for another hour, and so I really wasn't, you know, personally I was not straining my body. Other people that might be more of a strain, but I was not straining my body. But it's just keeping that focus, and that tends to deepen the concentration um, significantly when you do a little longer sittings. But what I like about this practice, at least the way I was interpreting it, was that it's not about this really intense, you know, sitting with pain. Because actually, if you have a lot of pain, you're not going to be able to be with the breath very easily. So it's actually not skillful. And so when there was a lot of pain, if there were, I didn't have that much pain, but it was a lot of sensation, like sitting in my, you know, my knees or my butt or speaking. And I would just sw switch posture, but keep the attention going. So if you to translate this into daily life, you might try sitting a little longer, particularly if it's going well. This is part of wise effort. You don't want to strain or say, I'm going to do this because... It's good. You know, it has to be more organic, right? That's wise effort. Um, and then out of that, there's a deepening of, of certain factors of mind which start opening up to very concentrated states. That can happen. And very, um, it kind of gives a sense of human possibilities, which 
without the concentration, they're not really so visible. It's quite, quite beautiful. And, you know, it can also see, when the mind gets very, very still, you can just see, you know, as we know, we can see thoughts coming sometimes just as little blips, you know, little, you know, or kind of there's a different perception of reality that's quite, can be quite profound as well, you know, where uh, things lose their objectness or their constancy and things are more like energy. It's quite interesting. Uh, and then last, last one, we be, be brief again. Yeah, that was I wasn't so brief. I live by myself. Yeah. Um, I hear quite a bit volunteering. Yeah. I've had someone visiting me. Yeah. Um, who's actually from Vermont for the last nine days. Yeah. And for the life of me, I have really struggled with my practice, with my ability to concentrate. I just feel like um, I can't. I can't get down into the intention. Yeah. So the question is about challenges in concentration with a house guest. <laughs> okay. uh, number one, give yourself some slack. Okay. okay. Number two, um, find maybe some other ways. Maybe get out of the house, do some walking meditation. Okay. Find some other ways to come to stillness. Be in your body a lot. So it's not just a matter of the mind. You can come to stillness with yoga or something like that. So use alternative methods. And um, sometimes you just have to sit through a period when it's really turbulent. So have some patience when you sit. Okay, thank you. Quick answer. Okay. No, perfect. Yeah, thank you. Okay, sorry for keeping us later, but I'll just do a very short ending of Dedication of Merit. May this day be very, very helpful to many, many beings. May we offer the fruits of our practice, and may each of us who hopefully want to continue this get inspired by concentration, do, do it in some form for the next week, either in having every session be concentration, or you can sometimes do 10 minutes, 20 minutes of a sitting, just really have that focus and work with that balance of kind of proactive, receptive effort. Look at that, and may, may our practice, again, be of benefit to all beings, including ourselves. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.